Rumpole on Trial by John Mortimer, adapted by Richard Stoneman, starring Julian Ryan Tutt as Horace Rumpole. Busy day ahead of you, Mr. Rumpole? Oh, oh. Open just a little wider for me, if you'd be so kind. That's lovely. On a grey, wet morning in the autumn of 1965, I awoke with a raging toothache. My dentist, Mr Lionel Leering, agreed to meet me at his Harley Street rooms at nine o'clock, giving me time to get to the old Bailey, where I was engaged in a particularly tricky case of manslaughter. What sort of terrible crime are you dealing with today, Mr Rumpole? I call her. My daughter? I can't even to ask. Well, Jessica's off to Florence to study history of art. <laughs> no, no, hang for her. My old hey. My old lady? Yeah. Oh, you mean my wife, Yolanda. She's a little better. <laughs> she spent some time in the health ah. Not quite a lot of weight. Uh, nice to be back, sadly, but uh, for a while she looked a little like her old... Oh! Uh, which was lovely. Ah! Not her fault, I suppose. One should never blame one's wife for anything. Not if one wants a happy marriage. Ah! Don't you agree, Mr. Rumpole? Or perhaps you know a better way towards marital bliss. Oh. <laughs> Manslaughter. That seems a little drastic, don't you think? No, no, no. The case I'm defending down the old Bailey. A man accused of killing his wife, charged with manslaughter. Oh, I see. Rinse now, if you please. <laughs> That's lovely. My client's accused of pushing his wife to the floor. She hit her head on the fireplace fender, and then she died. That's lovely. I've inserted a temporary filling. It should see you through the day, but please do telephone if you find yourself in trouble. I think it's going to take a great deal more than a temporary filling to see me through the day. And before Mr Justice Gwen Evans, I've probably spoken of the Welsh windbag. Possibly, but if I'm honest, Mr Rumpel, I don't understand a lot of what my patients tell me. As I hurried towards the old bailey, I felt a stab of pain that warned me my filling might be extremely temporary. And then I was almost knocked to the ground by a passing barrister, who turned out to be Mrs Erskine Brown, the Porsche of our chambers. I'm so sorry, Mr Rumpole. I'm going to be late. Sorry. Sorry. <sighs> Everyone said sorry to Rumpole, but no one actually meant it. And now, no doubt, it was going to be sorry for stealing your bands. I looked down the robing room in desperation and saw Claude Erskine Brown, husband of Philida, carefully tying a snow-white pair of crisp linen bands around his winged collar. I approached him in a hostile manner. Erskine Brown, have you pinched my bands? I'm sorry, Rumpel. And so you should be. The barrister's robing room is little better than a den of thieves. It's become a robbing room. Give them back. Get off me, Rumpel. These are mine. There's some bands over there on the table. Slightly soiled. Slightly soiled? What the hell are you trying to suggest? Well, they're probably yours. I put them on, reluctantly, and made my way down with my learned friend to court number five. 
where Erskine Brown tried to ask me about the case. Are you calling your client, Mr. Tring? Of course I'm calling him Mr. Tring. That's his name. What else would I call him? I mean, are you going to put Mr. Tring into the witness box? You don't have to. And there's a libel case coming up for which Henry was going to pencil me in if we can finish before... I'm telling you nothing of my plans, Erskine Brown. Whether I call my client or not is entirely up to me. In actual fact, I didn't know if or when I'd call my client. But I knew exactly what I'd like to call him. He was a grade A, 100% pain in the neck. When he spoke, he did so in a dreary monotone and never used one word when 20 would suffice. I'd given a lot of thought as to whether to call Mr. Tring as a witness in his own defence. I knew he would bore the jury to distraction and no doubt drive the cantankerous Celtic comedian, Mr. Justice Gwent Evans, into an apoplexy. However... Mrs. Tring had been found dead from a head wound in the sitting room of their semi-detached house in Rickmansworth, and I felt her husband was required to provide some sort of explanation. Mr. Tring stepped into the witness box, raised the testament on high, and gave us what appeared to be a shortened version of the oath. I swear that the evidence I shall give shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I, Mr. O'Poole... Your client has left something out of the oath. Aha! So I noticed, my lord. May I remind you of the book of Ezekiel? And it shall be unto them a false divination in their sight to them that have sworn oaths. Oh, Mr. Humboldt, can you control your client? I'm afraid I can't, my lord. Oh, let's use some common sense, shall we? Mr. Tring, do you understand what it is to tell the truth? I have always told the truth, constantly, throughout my thirty years in the ministry. Ministry? Mr. Rumpel, is your client a man of the cloth? I think he's referring to the Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food, <laughs> where he was a clerk for many years. Is that right, Mr. Tring? Yes. And are you going to tell the truth now? Yes. There you are, Mr. Rumpel. That's the way to do it. Now, let's get on with the case, shall we? I assure your lordship that I can't... Wait, ah! Wait, ah! You're not in a rest zone, Mr. Rumpel. My tooth is killing me, and standing before you in pain like this is the closest I've come to a living hell. was what I thought, but didn't say. Instead, I soldiered on and turned toward my client. Were you married to the late Moira Tring? We met in the Ministry's cafeteria. Moira, Moira Pennington, as she was in those days, held a post in the typing pool. We were queuing for the hot option, and being a Tuesday, it was beef stew with dumplings. There was just enough left for one generous portion, and even though I was ahead of Moira in the queue... I, I don't decided... want to hurry you. Oh, please do hurry in, Mr. Rumpole. Yes, get a move on, will you? I have tickets for the opera. Shall we skip forward in time to your marriage? The 16th of March, 1935, at the Church of St. Joseph and All Angels in the village of Pinner. The weather, I seem to remember, was particularly inclement, cloudy, a little rain... Yeah, don't worry about the weather, please. Just get on with it. Could you describe your married life to the jury? It is better to dwell in a corner of the housetop oh. than with a brawling woman in a wide house. It is better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious, angry woman. Oh, Mr. Rumpel. As my client's evidence continued to annoy an increasingly impatient judge, and my toothache bored into my head with a growing level of agony, 
I felt myself falling out of love with the art of advocacy. We had learned more about the filing system within the Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food than we'd ever need or want to know. And then Mr. Justice Gwent Evans decided enough was enough. Oh, for God's sake! Please, taking his name in vain. You mean for all our sakes, then? When are we going to come to the facts of this manslaughter? My lord, the facts of this accident are about... Why do you call it an accident? Isn't that for the jury to decide? Your lordship called it manslaughter. Isn't that for the jury to decide? Did I say that? Did I say that, Mr. Erskine Brown? I, I don't recall... Yes, you my... said that, my lord. I wonder if your lordship had joined the prosecution team, or was it a single-handed effort to prejudice the jury? <gasps> now you've done it. Mr. Rumpole, that was a quite intolerable thing for you to say. My lord, that was a quite intolerable thing for you to do. I may have had a momentary slip of the tongue. Or your lordship's well-known common sense may have deserted you. <laughs> Mr. Rumpole, I think you should be warned. One of these days you may go too far, and behaviour such as yours can have certain consequences. Now, can we get on? Certainly. I didn't wish to interrupt the flow of your lordship's rebuke. Mr. Trigg, hmm. On the night in question, did you and Mrs. Tring quarrel? As per usual, yes. What did your wife do on the night in question? She ran at me with her nails poised. Poised? As though to scratch me across the face, which it was often her habit so to do. However, as ill luck would have it, the runner in front of the gas fire slipped beneath her feet on the polished flooring and she fell. As she did so, the back of her head made contact with the raised tiling in front of our hearth, and she received the injuries which ultimately caused her to pass over. Uh, Mr. Rumpole, is that the explanation of this lady's death you wish to leave to the jury? Certainly, my lord. Does your lordship wish to prejudge the issue? Are we about to hear a little premature adjudication? Mr. Rumpole, I have warned you twice. I shall not warn you again. I'm looking at the clock. I had noticed, my lord. And we'll break off now. Back at ten past two, members of the jury. Mr. Tring, I understand you're on bail. Well, you are also in the middle of giving your evidence. It is vitally important that you speak to no one about your case during the lunchtime adjournment. Yes, indeed, my lord. And no one must speak to you, particularly your legal advisers. Is that thoroughly understood, Mr. Rumpole? I do know the rules, my lord. I hope you do, Mr. Rumpole. I sincerely hope you do. All parties in R.V. Tring went their separate ways, seeking their individual modes of refreshment. In my case, it was a pork pie and a pint of Guinness in the pub across the road. My learned friend, Claude Erskine Brown, toyed with the spaghetti bolognese in a local ristorante as he waited for his wife, the lovely Philida Ney Trant, to join him. But she was delayed, taking notes for her leader in another case, and only found her husband when he was walking back to the robing room with a troubled frown on his face. Oh, I'm so sorry, Claude. I couldn't get away, and now I'm absolutely... It's outrageous. I said I was sorry. No, 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 not you. Rumpole. He was given a very firm warning by Gwent Evans. A warning about what? Talking to his client. 
And yet I just saw him. Down the corridor, over there, the defendant, Tring, sitting by the door. And Rumpel was shouting at the man. Oh, he, he thought he was being so clever hiding around the corner, but I heard his voice, clear as a bell. You're driving me mad. All you do is talk, you boring old fart. Just get on with it. Hmm? I've got enough trouble without you causing me all this agony. Get it out, that's all. Short and snappy, put me out of my misery. Get it out and then shut up. Mr. Rumpole said all that to his client. Well, I shall have to raise it with the judge. Oh, no. No, no, please, Claude. You'll get poor Mr. Rumpole into the most terrible trouble. He knows the rules. He said so himself. I certainly knew the rules. But I knew nothing of Erskine Brown's accusation when I resumed my examination of the loquacious Mr. Tring. <laughs> Did you ever intend to do your wife the slightest harm? No. Did you strike her? No. Or assault her in any way? No. Thank you. Uh, just wait there. In case Mr. Erskine Brown can think of anything to ask you. <clears throat> Mr. Tring, you've become very monosyllabic since lunch, haven't you? Perhaps it's something he ate. No, it's nothing you ate, as your learned counsel suggests. It's something Mr. Rumpel said to you. Said to him? When are you suggesting Mr. Rumpole spoke to his client? During the luncheon adjournment, my lord. Mr. Rumpole, did I not give a solemn warning that no one was to speak to Mr. Tring and he was to speak to no one during the adjournment? Indeed you did, my lord. That's why I was so surprised when I heard Mr. Rumpole ignoring that warning. You heard Mr. Rumpole speaking to Mr. Tring? I'm afraid so, my lord. Oh, come off it, Erskine Brown. And what exactly did Mr. Rumpole say? He told Mr. Tring to get on with it, get it out, and make it snappy. D oh, yes. And he said he was a boring old fart. A boring old what? Fart, my lord. That's not an instruction. Since the conversation, you say the defendant has been monosyllabic. In other words... He is obeying Mr. Rumpel's improperly given instructions. That's precisely what I'm suggesting, my lord. Well, now, Mr. Rumpel, what have you got to say to Mr. Erskine Brown's accusation? I couldn't be bothered to argue. I was tired of Tring, tired of judges, tired of learned friends, tired of toothache, tired of life. I rose wearily to my feet. I have nothing to say, my lord. You don't deny what Mr. Erskine Brown has told the court is true? I neither accept it nor deny it. It's a contemptible suggestion made by an advocate incapable of conducting a proper cross-examination. Further than that, I don't feel called upon to comment. But so far as I know, I am not on trial. Not yet. Then I suggest we concentrate on the trial of Mr. Tring and forget the trial of Mr. Rumpole. When the court did what I asked, we made swift progress. Mr. Tring remained monosyllabic. Our speeches were brief. The judge, all passion spent by the drama of the lunch hour, summed up succinctly, and by half-past five, the jury were back with a verdict of not guilty. Shortly after that, I took up position in a corner of Pomeroy's wine bar, studiously ignoring my learned friend, Erskine Brown, who was standing at the bar, trying to explain himself to the portion of our chambers. Why on earth did you have to do that, Claude? Why? <laughs> Rather brilliant, I thought. <laughs> mm. 
He completely got the judge on my side. And completely got the jury on Mr. Rumpole's side. His client was acquitted in case you hadn't noticed. Well, win a few, lose a few. That's part of the course. But why do that to Mr. Rumpole, of all people? Well, he shouldn't have talked to his client when he was still in the box. It's just not on. Are you sure he did? I heard him with my own ears. Is that good enough reason to get him disbarred? Rumpel, disbarred? <laughs> oh, no, I don't think it's going to happen. You said Gwent Evans was livid. Yes, but he won't take it further. All hot air and pompous bluster. You know the sort. Yes, I think I do. And I think what you did was outrageous. I really am furious. My God, you're beautiful when you're angry. <gasps> I saw Philida turn away from her husband in disgust and perked up a little as she came striding towards my table. I sipped my glass of cognac as she sat beside me. Rumpole, you've got to fight this. Every inch of the way. Fight what? Your case. Yeah, there is no case. Not yet, perhaps, but it's only a matter of time. Oh, Mr. Rumpole, you're drinking brandy. Dutch courage. That's not like you. You've never been afraid of judges before. Judges? Oh, no, no. As I've always taught you, fearlessness is the first essential in an advocate. I can cope with judges. It's the other chaps that give me the gym jabs. Which other chaps, Mr. Rumpole? <sighs> Dentists. Lionel Leering drove me for a while until he realised he couldn't save my tooth and he was better off pulling the offending molar out of my head. Time passed and before I knew it I was awaiting an event I'd never imagined possible. The trial of Rumpole. You probably know that we legal hacks are divided into inns, known as inns of court. These are ruled by the benchers, judges and senior barristers. The benchers of my inn, known as the Outer Temple, do themselves extremely proud and enjoy a good many ceremonial dinners, grand nights, guest nights and other such occasions. On this particular guest night, Mr Justice Graves, as treasurer of the inn, was presiding over the festivities. Mr. Justice Gwent Evans was also present, as was Sam Ballard, the alleged head of our chambers and recently elected bencher. Soapy Sam, somewhat overawed by his new surroundings, was listening to a complaint about me. I've had enough of his so-called eccentricity. I no longer regard it as charming. Oh, Selwyn, I promise you, Rumpole is quite, quite harmless. Mm. Well, just a little theatrical. Theatrical? <laughs> what the hell's that supposed to mean? Oh, well, you know, his clothes. Beginning to make him look a little down at heel. Collars fraying, filthy waistcoats, cigar ash. But it's just to get sympathy from the jury. <sighs> is he in your chambers, my lad? I inherited the man. I've tried to raise the matter of his waistcoat on many occasions. I just can't get him to listen to me. Rumpole used abusive language in my court. Oh. Not that I mind for myself, but when you're representing the Queen, it amounts to less majesty. There's a strong rumour going around the Sheridan Club that yeah. Rumpole called you a boring old fart. <clears throat> I hope that's not true. Then he said it, I mean. I know you're not a yeah, boring... I'm aware of what he said. 
was the clearest contempt of court. That's why I felt it was my public duty to report the matter to the Bar Council. Absolutely. <laughs> Put the report in the dark. All right. Make him face up to the consequences of his actions. And may the Lord have mercy on his soul. The news was bad, and I knew I had to break it to she who must be obeyed as soon as possible. So it was in the tentative and somewhat nervous way that a parent on Guy Fawkes' night lights the blue touch paper and stands well back that I raised the subject as we sat up in bed one evening. She attempting to complete the telegraph crossword, me perusing a brief for an actual bodily harm in Ballam. Hilda, I've got something to tell you. Mm. Unless it helps me with nine across, I'd... Doubt I'll be interested. I think you will. Urge to get off drink, we hear. Four letters. I think I've finished with this kind of thing. What do you mean? <clears throat> that case, you've got that? This case, every other case. I doubt you'll see me down the old Bailey ever again. Oh, Rumpo, that's wonderful news. Is it? Oh, all those sordid little crimes. You're <clears throat> far too good for that nonsense. I still have to go through the formalities, of course. Of course. Well, I imagine it's a little tricky moving on. Well, it, it might be. I've never done it before. No, you've always been at Daddy's chambers. And now you'll need to meet new solicitors. Better solicitors. Wave goodbye to Bonnie Bernard. Say hello to... Who do you think? What? Well, who's best for commercial business? Who's best? Hmm. Is this another crossword clue? I'm confused. Well, don't be. I was talking to Marigold Featherston in Harrods mm. just the other day. Still confused. She's going to have a word with Guthrie. Well, I doubt there's anything he can do. He's going to find you new chambers. I don't want new chambers, and no chambers will want me when I'm disbarred. When you're what? I'm up before a disciplinary panel at the Bar Council, Hilda. They're going to kick me out. What have you done, Rumpole? Have you got yourself into some kind of trouble? That is the understatement of the year. Is it another woman? One of your pupils? Oh, not that Elizabeth Probert. No, no, Hilda, it is not another woman. <sighs> it's another man. <gasps> what? Mr Justice Gwent Evans, to be precise. Oh. We had words in court. But I was courteous and respectful at all times. Oh, that means you were very rude at all times to the poor man. I still have a soft spot for poor Selwyn. Only because he tried to seduce you at the scales of justice ball. He did no such thing. And what else did you do, Rumpole? You can't be in so much trouble simply for being rude to a judge. They say I spoke to my client at lunchtime. I'm alleged to have told him not to bore us all to death. I see. And when is this disciplinary hearing? Very soon. I shall stand by you, Rumpole. At whatever cost... I shall stand by you, through thick and thin. Well, that's, that's very kind of you, Hilda. Perhaps I should explain the obscure legal process that has to be gone through in the unfrocking, or should I say unwigging, of a barrister. The Bar Council is the so-called guardian of our morality. There to see we don't indulge in serious crimes or conduct unbecoming to a legal hack, such as speaking to our clients in the lunch hour. 
Mr Justice Gwent Evans had made a complaint to that body, and a committee had decided to send me for trial before a High Court judge, three practising barristers and a lay assessor. Not so much one of the great and good, but one of the not-too-bad-and-could-do-better. I spent even longer than usual in Pomeroy's wine bar, contemplating a future without briefs and, consequently, without the funds to pay for any more bottles of Chateau Thames embankment. It was with a heavy heart and an empty wallet that I set off for the tube station. As I came down Middle Temple Lane onto the embankment, I saw the figure of Claude Erskine Brown approaching, with his robe bag slung over his shoulder, whistling a catchy number from De Valkyrie or some such Wagnerian showstopper. Erskine Brown had been the cause of all my troubles, and I had no desire to bandy words with the fellow. So I turned my back and started to retrace my steps in an easterly direction. Who should I see then but Mr Justice Gwent Evans coming down Middle Temple Lane, smoking a cigar and looking like a man who'd been enjoying a pretty decent dinner. Quick as a shot, I dived into the late-night traffic and crossed the road to the embankment, squeezing through a gap in the railings and finding some precarious cover behind a riverside statue. I stood there, back pressed against the plinth, looking down into the inky water of the Thames. I was hoping I'd got shot of my two opponents when I felt a hand grasping at my arm and a panic-stricken voice. Don't do it, Rumpole. Do what? Don't take the easy way out. Bollard! For heaven's sake, let go of me! However serious the crime, all sinners may be forgiven. Yeah. And remember, there are those that are standing by you, your devoted wife and me. I have taken up the burden of your defence. Well, put it down. I've nothing whatever to say to those ridiculous charges. I am acting for you at your trial, and I think I can save you if you truly repent. What is this, a legal conference or a prayer meeting? The two are never far apart. Yeah. You may achieve salvation if you confess you have erred and strayed like a lost sheep. Me? A lost sheep? Repentance is the only way. Never. I don't ask it for myself, Rumpole, even though I'm standing by you. Well, stop standing by me. I'm on my way to the underground. Make some room. I ask it for that fine woman who has devoted her life to you. A somewhat unworthy cause, perhaps, but she is devoted, Rumpel. I ask it for Hilda. You spoke to Bollard? Of course I did. I popped into his room this morning and we had a nice little chat. What exactly did you say? I told him I'd been to see the people at the Bar Council and they'd said you need a QC to represent you. Since Sam Ballard's both a QC and your head of chambers, who better to act for you in front of the panel? And he agreed? Not at first. It took some persuasion. He was worried you might not apologise to Selwyn Gwent Evans <laughs> fully and sincerely. I said I was sure you would. But you're wrong, because I won't. Oh, please, Rumpole. Think about me, hmm? just for once. I remember how everybody respected Daddy. How could I bear to be the wife of a disbarred barrister? How could I meet any of the fellows in chambers and hear them say as I turned away, Oh, of course you remember old Rumpole. Oh, you're kicked out for unprofessional conduct. Hilda. <sighs> I... See your point, I suppose. What do you want me to do? Take Sam Ballard's advice. Apologise to Selwyn. All right. All right, you win. I promise I'll apologise. 
I sounded quite convincing, but behind my back, my fingers were firmly crossed. My trial began in the outer temple parliament room. I wasn't guarded in a dock, but sat in a comfortable chair beside my learned counsel, Soapy Sam Ballard, QC. The presiding judge was Mr. Justice Graves, or Gravestone, as I preferred to call him, who looked as though he was sick to the stomach at the thought of a barrister accused of such appalling crimes. Erskine Brown gave evidence, in a highly embarrassed way, of what he'd heard, and I instructed Bollard not to ask him questions. This came as a relief to Bollard, as he couldn't think of any. No questions, my lord. I noticed Phyllida Erskine Brown, nay Trent, sitting at the back of the room, making notes like the keen pupil she used to be. She was now a junior barrister and a tenant of Equity Court, but she had yet to lead a case. I looked away from Phyllida as Mr. Justice Gwent Evans came oozing into the room. Good afternoon, He was wearing a dark suit and a tie that was either the Welsh Guards or the Leek Growers Association. My money was on the latter. Gwent Evans was excused from taking the oath by Gravestone, who acted on the well-known theory that judges are incapable of fibbing. And he gave his account of all my sins and omissions to Montague Varian QC for the prosecution. There you have it. As he did so, I examined the faces of my judges. The lay assessor was Lady Mendip, a headmistress who'd been a guest of the outer temple before. Ballard rose, with the greatest of respect, to cross-examine Gwent Evans. It's extremely courteous of you to agree to attend here in person, Judge. And absolutely charming of you to lodge a complaint against me. Now... <clears throat> My client wants you to know that he was suffering from a severe toothache on the day in question. Mr. Ballard, may I interrupt? Of course, my lord. Is toothache really an excuse for speaking to a client during the luncheon time adjournment? I should have thought Mr. Rumpole would have been anxious to rest his mouth. My lord, I'm now dealing with the question of rudeness to the learned judge. I understand my client wishes to apologise in his own words. What? No. Yes. On your feet, for God's sake. <clears throat> my lord, if it please your lordship, I do realise there are certain things which should not be said or done in court, things that are utterly inexcusable and no doubt amount to contempt. Mr. Rumpole, the tribunal, and I believe I can speak for all of us, yes, like so. the tribunal is both surprised and gratified by this unusually apologetic attitude. I take it you're about to withdraw the inexcusable phrases? Inexcusable? Certainly. I was just about to put to Mr. Justice Gwent Evans the inexcusable manner in which he sighs and rolls his eyes to heaven when he sums up the defence case. Of course, members of the jury, you can believe that if you like, but use your common sense, why don't you? And what about describing my client's conduct as manslaughter during the evidence which was the very fact the jury had to decide... If he's prepared to say sorry for that, then I'll apologise for pointing out his undoubted prejudice. Am I expected to sit here and endure a repetition of the quite intolerable... No, 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 I, of course not. Uh, my lord, if it please your lordship, may I take instructions? I think you'd better... Rumble, what are you doing? You said you'd apologise. I'm prepared to swap apologies. I heard that, Mr. Ballard. I wonder what Mr. Rumpole's excuse is for his behaviour today. 
isn't suffering from toothache now, is he? My lord, I, I will take further instructions. Rumpel, have you toothache today? No. I had the damn thing extracted before the end of our V-tring. I'm afraid, my lord, the answer is no. He had the damn... Th he had it out during the trial. So on this occasion you can't even plead toothache as a defence? I fear not, my lord. <coughs> Let me make a note. Had it out during the trial. Well, I think we should stop there and continue this unhappy case in the morning. Uh, my lord, may I make an application? What is it, Mr. Rumpole? I'm getting tired of Mr. Ballard's attempts to get me to apologise unilaterally. Would you ask him not to speak to his client over the adjournment? Please? Gravestone had made a note of the historic fact that I had my tooth extracted during the trial of Mr. Tring. At the back of the Parliament room, Phyllida Erskine-Brown made the same note, and, she later told me, underlined the words, Had it out. As soon as the tribunal packed up business for the day, she went back to Chambers and persuaded her husband to take her down the old bailey and show her the locus in quo, the scene where the ghastly crime of chattering to a client had allegedly been committed. Where exactly did you see Mr Rumpole? Well, he came out through that arch after he'd finished talking to his client. But while he was speaking to his client, where was he then? Actually, um, now I come to think of it, I... I didn't see him while he was talking. He, he, he was hidden from my view when he was shouting his instructions. Then let's take a look through here and see where he might have been standing. Aha! Just as I thought. You've been thinking about this? Of course. And I imagined there might well have been a public telephone somewhere in the vicinity. Well, here it is. Working perfectly. So, Mr. Rumpole might well have been standing here, shouting into the telephone, when you were listening. Um, well, I suppose that's possible. And you heard him say what? Just get on with it. I've got enough trouble without you causing me all this agony. Get it out. Something like that, yes. In which case, I think I'd better call Mrs. Rumpole. See if she can join me at the tribunal tomorrow. And I'll want the name of Mr. Rumpole's dentist. Claude, have you got any coins? Can't you reverse the charges? Oh, Claude! Ah, very well. But try not to talk for too long, it's expensive. Oh. <coughs> Hello? Is that Mrs. Rumpole? Speaking. It's Phyllida Erskine Brown from Equity Court. I work with your husband. Well, at least I used to be his pupil. I know who you are, Mrs. Erskine Brown, but I'm afraid my husband is not at home. May I take a message? Uh, no, no, no. It was you I wanted to speak to. Me? What on earth do you want to say to me? Well, this may sound peculiar, but I think there's something you could tell your husband that might help him with the trouble he's in. Do you have a moment to chat? I, of course, knew nothing about that telephone conversation. But just before the tribunal met the next morning, I noticed the Porsche of our chambers in discussion with the head of our chambers, 
Philida was briefing Bollard. But about what? The answer soon came when my learned counsel recalled Claude Erskine Brown as a witness. Bollard got confirmation that Erskine Brown had not actually seen me speaking to Mr. Tring, and he agreed that there was indeed a public telephone on the far side of the archway, out of sight from his position on the day in question. I was sure it would make no difference to the result. But then Soapy Sam called Lionel Leering to the witness chair. Mr. Leering, do you carry on your practice in Harley Street, London, West 1? That is so. And may I say, I have a most important bridge to insert this morning. By which I mean the bridge itself is not important, but the patient into whose mouth it will be inserted most certainly is. He is very much in the public eye. But patient confidentiality is paramount, so I think I've said enough on the matter. In which case, let us turn to another patient, Mr. Horace Rumpel. Did you treat him on the morning of November the 16th? I did. He came early because he told me he was in the middle of a case at the Old Bailey. He was defending a manslaughterer. I gave him a temporary filling, which I thought would keep him going. And did it? Apparently not. He rang me around lunchtime and told me his tooth was causing him considerable pain. He was extremely angry. He raised his voice at me and was really rather rude. Can you remember what he said? Uh, something like, I've got enough trouble with the judge without you causing me all this agony. Uh, get it out. Put me out of my misery. What do you think he meant? He wanted his tooth extracted. Did you do that for him? Yes, eventually. I saw him at 7.30 that evening. He was more cheerful then, but uh, a little unsteady on his feet. I believe he'd been drinking brandy. An awful lot of brandy. I see. Mr Ballard, I'm grateful for the evidence we've just heard. The witness may leave now if he wishes. <laughs> Thank you very much, Your Honour. Uh, uh, my lord, <laughs> that's, that's lovely, lovely. If we believe what Mr. Leering just told us, and we accept Erskine Brown's description of the position of the old Bailey telephone, plus the fact he never actually saw Mr. Rumpole talking, then the allegation about speaking to his client falls to the ground, does it not? I think it does, my lord. Then all the remains are the offensive remarks to Mr. Justice Gwent Evans. Yes, my lord. Well, this case now turns solely on whether your client is prepared to make a proper unilateral apology to my brother, Gwent Evans. Indeed, my lord. We will consider the matter after a short adjournment. As everyone bowed to everyone else and the members of the panel departed, I turned and found myself face to face with she who must be obeyed. Rumpole. I've been thinking things over, and I've decided Selwyn Gwent Evans treated you abominably. My view of the matter is that you shouldn't apologise at all. That's really your view, Hilda. Oh, of course it is. I'm sure nothing will make you stop practising the law, unless you're disbarred. But how wonderful that will be for our marriage. Our marriage? What on earth do you mean? We can move out of London. I was thinking of Cornwall, near Dodo Mackintosh. The sea air will be so good for Nicholas. We could run a bed and breakfast business together. Oh, or a little tea shop. Hmm? Well, whatever we do, it'll be just the three of us. Plus Dodo popping in all the time. Oh, Rumpel, it'll be a lovely fresh start. Can you think of anything better? 
Oh, so, there it was. The choice I had to make. Either refuse to apologise and face certain de-wigging, or grovel and beg for forgiveness, thereby preventing a move to the beautiful county of Cornwall with all the charms it has to offer, and a fresh start with she who must be obeyed. If your lordship and the members of the tribunal, please. I have, I hope, some knowledge of the human race in general and the judicial race in particular. I do realise that some of those elevated to the bench are more vulnerable, more easily offended than others. <clears throat> Mr Justice Squint Evans is one of the most retiring, shy and sensitive of their lordships of the Old Bailey. If anything I have said may have wounded him, I do most humbly and most sincerely apologise. What went on behind closed doors between my judges, I can't say. But in one rather athletic bound, Rumpole was free and still to be audible in the Ludgate Circus Palais de Justice. Tell me, Ballard, how on earth did you get your client to apologise like that? It's beyond comprehension. As head of these chambers, I do wield some considerable influence, even over a renegade like Rumpole. Well, now he's won, you'll have to keep him on a tighter leash. Oh, God, give me strength. I, um, <clears throat> I do hope we can um, put this unpleasant matter behind us. Uh, you move on, pretend it never happened. You'd like that, wouldn't you, Erskine Brown? But this wasn't one of your Wagnerian melodramas. This was real life. This was my career you nearly ended. Yes, but no harm done. And why on earth didn't you just tell me you'd been talking to your dentist? Because your suggestion that I was coaching my client was beneath contempt, much like yourself. Anyway, at the time I rather fancied being disbarred. But why? For the sword outwears its sheath, and the soul wears out the breast, and the heart must pause to breathe. But not yet, Erskine Brown. Not yet. I left him trying to place the quotation, knowing full well he'd never read a word of Lord Byron in his life, and sought out the Porsche of our chambers, who was refreshing her glass of Pomeroy's fizz at Bollard's conference table. Just tell me this, young Philida. Who was it who coached my wife to bang on about a fresh start in Cornwall? I honestly don't know what you mm. mean, Mr. Rumpole. Honestly? You're saying she just happened to think of the best way to convince me to apologise all by herself? I did what you've always taught me to do. Mm -hmm. Take careful notes, visit the locus in quo, and only ask questions when you know what the answer will be. And that's really all you did? Absolutely, Mr. Rumpole. Well, there you have it. Have what? The problem with barristers, in a nutshell, you can never, ever believe a word they say. But you'd rather be one yourself than anything else. And so would you. And do as adversaries do in law. Strive mightily, but eat and, <laughs> and drink, drink as, as friends. friends. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> In Rumpole on Trial by John Mortimer, Horace Rumpole was played by Julian Reintutt. 
Hilda, Jasmine Hyde, and Philida Erskine-Brown was Cathy Sarah. Claude Erskine-Brown was played by Nigel Anthony. Reginald Tring, Gus Brown, Sam Ballard, Michael Cochran, and Judge Graves was Stephen Critchlow. Other parts were played by members of the company. Rumpole on Trial was adapted by Richard Stoneman, directed by Marilyn Imrie, and is a Catherine Bailey production for BBC Radio 4.